Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. What is going on, everybody? Thank you again for joining us. In this week's episode, Damon and Kevin talk with sports legend Brandon Steiner, who is the founder and chairman of Steiner Sports, the industry-leading memorabilia company worth over $50 million. He has worked with the Yankees since 2004. He is a regular on ESPN Radio, the author of three books, and one of the most innovative entrepreneurs in the sports marketing industry. Brandon talks with us about starting his company, his stories working with the Yankees, and working with players such as Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, the list goes on. Hope you guys enjoy it, and let's get after it. The, the big thing that everyone knows you for is Steiner Sports and uh-huh. it has become this legendary, massive sports memorabilia company, sports marketing company. Um, I guess my first question to you is just, were you always involved in, in this from the very beginning or um, what was kind of your career path before that and what was inspired you to get involved in it? Well, that's a good question. I mean, and, you know, I, I think transition is probably the key word because I think that. Um, you know, there's always different things that lead you to different things. And, and my beginnings, although I was always a crazy Yankee fan and always a crazy sports fan, I never thought about ever being in the sports business because it didn't exist mm-hmm. as a kid. So I was a big restaurant hotel. I loved cooking and I, was, I worked in bagel stores growing up. And when I got out of uh, Syracuse, when I graduated Syracuse, all I really want to do is work for a hotel, a really good one. And I was lucky enough to land a job for Hyatt and, I opened up the Hard Rock here in New York. That was only the first. There was only one Hard Rock at that time in London. Then they opened up one in L.A., one in New York. And the one in New York was the big one. It was one of the more successful ones. So that was a lucky break. And I met a lot of athletes when I was at the Hyatt in the rooftop restaurant. So that was the hotel that the Yankees and a lot of the teams would stay at. So I got mm-hmm. to meet a lot of players just as a fan. And then when I went to the Hard Rock, there was a lot of celebrities uh, and so I got to meet the celebrities and I kind of saw a little bit of the marketing of celebrities, which was really interesting. Yeah. There's just to see how celebrities at the hard rock and also the memorabilia thing. That's kind of what got in my soul a little bit because I saw the memorabilia and I saw that memorabilia and I saw how powerful it was and how people were so intrigued with it. And my thought process was, wow, this would be really cool in sports. And that's what kind of led me to the sports path. I opened up one of the first sports bars in 1984. And uh, believe it or not, in those days, there were very few restaurants and bars that would have a TV in them. And you were lucky you got one game a week on TV or two games a week. Now we get like, what, 10 games a night. Yeah, at least. But back when I, back when I was a kid and back when, even when I was in my early 20s, there was no cable. There was no million games on. And, and so going to this sports bar that we had opened up down on Hudson Street, uh, the, the guy who actually opened it, who's the owner, was Billy Rose. He was a limited partner in the Yankees. He still is. Good guy. Uh-huh. 
So we go open this thing up, and Billy's got this satellite dish, which is the size of, you know, huge, you know, those old satellite dishes. Yeah. And, I mean, everybody would come. This was the only satellite dish in New York. It would take us, like, 20 minutes to find the game on the bird. We'd find a game, Oakland playing the Angels, or we'd find, you know, some rant, crazy game somewhere. And yeah. it would take us, like, 20 minutes to find it on the bird. You know, we have to go twist the thing real slow and, because in New York, it's really hard to have that kind of satellite dish with all the interference. And that's what got me into it. Like, all these players would come and watch their opposing teams. And I met a lot of the sports marketing and sports management people at that time. So when that kind of played out, I, you know, just I you know, ended up starting my own business. And it was just kind of lucky because I made a relationship with a lot of different players. Back then, it was a little more of the Mets. But the Mets were more hotter in the mid-'80s than the Yankees, frankly. But I had made a good relationship with uh, Dave Winfield and a bunch of other Yankees even at that time. Right. And believe it or not, I was going to end the, the, the answer to that question. I was just doing the fan mail for a lot of these players. I was just booking them for golf outings and charity events. And I was opening up their mail because fans, the only way you communicate with a player was to send them a, a letter. And I would open up hundreds of pieces of mail, take out the important stuff, and then show it to the players. Um, and then... I would follow up with them, and once in a while there'd be an appearance there or different things, a kid was sick or whatever it was, and I'd follow up. And that's what kind of got me really into it. And there's no question, nobody got more fan mail than the Yankee players. No question. Yeah, I can't. it's different times for sure. It's something that uh, – that's, you know, that, that's incredible. Definitely something that a <laughs> lot of people – It's A lot of people yeah, nowadays definitely – name on a sign out in the outfield or yeah believe me you know it didn't start that way it was humbling i mean i'd wake up at six in the morning and i would write the check i would write the contract i'd go pick up the player myself in my little you know not a very nice car yeah take the player two hours you know <laughs> then get back and you know maybe i'd make a hundred hours on that you know but yeah you know so when you talk to the older players like you know they know me like they know me, me. They don't. They don't know about Steiner Sports. They know about Brandon, and I would call them up. And just to get a player on the phone, you have to have his home phone number. There was no cell. There was no Instagram, Twitter. So you would have to track him down on the road. A lot of these players use the alias names. It yeah. would take me sometimes two, three days just to find a player <laughs> to be able to get a hold of him because you got to get the locker room phone number. There was a pay phone in the locker room, or you pay off the operator in the hotel. You'd send us something, so she'd give you the names of the aliases and stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was hard, you know, getting these guys to do stuff because it's hard just, to get a hold of them. I couldn't just DM outside them. outside in the parking lot for hours. Yeah. Hours waiting for these guys to come out, hoping they'd give me their home phone number. That's that's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, it's certainly a lot easier for us. Yeah, we could just I mean, DM, it's different. You know, all the pressure's on you guys. You know, sometimes, you know, it's a click and a pick to find something. Yeah, but you it's, still gotta have something, you know. And yeah, still the pressure. I always tell people, like, you can call anybody you want. I remember I, one day I called Howard Cosell, and he just picked up. I was like, oh my god! And then, so, so I told him, I was like, you can get it to anybody if you really want to, but you still gotta have something to say, you know, yeah. relevant to want that person to keep talking to you. Yeah, and that's always the hardest part is you know coming up with quality opportunities, quality content. Uh, quality merchandise you know people forget how important it is to just do really good work yeah and that's what gets people moving and i think that's what that was the thing i'm most proud of at the beginning of my career because i would come up with the ideas like i would pick up the players and i would take them and you know and players respected that how hard i was working and it led me to a lot bigger opportunities and 
So a lot of times when you're young and you think that things aren't moving along as fast, you are building your foundation to your house. And the initial impressions you get from the people you're working with, it may not be paying big dividends, but it does go a long way in your reputation when people see you doing good quality work and working really hard. Yeah, it's different because um, brought up a good point with just having, you know, the quality doesn't doesn't change. You know, um, thing, so one thing that I noticed, I know that Kevin and I are both um, we're both in business and marketing, um, but even though that we do have the ability to DM or talk or comment or like something of another player, or even you or anybody in the industry, the volume has increased so much. You know, they're not going to mm-hmm. look at a thousand DMS from one person, the quality still has to be there. And, um, yeah, you're probably a good point. It, things are, things are the same, but they change and keeping up with trends is the most important. Yeah. Like I'll give you an example. Like, I mean, you still have to come up, even though you can send out all these emails, you still got to come up with an incredibly creative subject line. And your email has got to be different than everybody else's email. Yeah. But, um, you, you have a big Yankee fan base. I want to tell you a quick story, if you don't mind about how I really got going with the Yankees. Yeah, please. Please. (laughs) So, you know, I'm a crazy Yankee fan and what's crazy is, you know, I have kids and everything. I mean, literally my, my friends and I in Brooklyn, we grew up in Brooklyn. We would go to Yankee games and I'm not talking about one or two. We would go to at least 15 or so Yankee games, maybe 20. If there was a double header, a bad day, we were there. Yeah. We were 10 years old. I have the scorecards. We were going over with my friends. I'm still friends with those guys 50 years later. We kept score. We had a scorecard, and we would travel all the way from Brooklyn on a train. No adults, 10 years old. And that's back when the Yankee Stadium was a little dangerous. Now it's the safest stadium on the planet. There's no question. Yeah. And it has been for some time. But back then, it was always a little questionable. And, you know, we always got roughed up by some older kids every now and then. We had to give up a little bit of money. It was no big deal. It was kind of part of the whole thing. I mean, yeah, we, you know, one of us would get kind of mugged or whatever. So I'm a diehard Yankee fan. We'd go home. We'd keep track of the score. When we weren't going to the games, go back to the schoolyard, boom, talk about the game, mimic Phil Rizzuto. So I do this appearance with Phil Rizzuto early in my career, and, and uh, I get a call from the banker who's at Citibank, and he says, Brad, you better come and see me. Um, I had to bounce one of your checks. I go, what? I go run down to the bank. It was only two blocks away from my office. He goes, you know, I, 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 I bounced Phil Rizzuto's check. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Are you crazy? He goes, I go, well, I, I had a choice. I bounced Phil Rizzuto's check or I put through the other check. He said, who's the other check? I go, he goes, it's Mickey Mantle. I said, okay, good move. Don't <laughs> bounce enough. Mickey Mantle's check. Good idea. <laughs> So he bounced Phil Rizzuto's check. Phil calls me up about an hour later. And we always used to say, he goes, Brandon, I'm going to give you a red ass. Now, Phil was the grandfather you never had, and he was relentless. If you screwed up, he would not stop driving you crazy. He was a character in his own right. And by the way, one of the greatest players I've ever dealt with in relation to the fans. He was all about the fans. He would go to the stadium an hour before he had be there just to sign autographs for the fans constantly. No matter what we were doing, if a fan stopped us, I'd immediately stop. So he talked to the fans. He, he was one of, one of a kind. I, I know he, he's a little before your time, but he was a legend. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he's killing me. He goes, Steiner, I was counting on that money. It was 1500 bucks. I'm counting on that money. I was going to go to the track and have some fun. Now you bounce this check. You ruined my whole week. I mean, really killing me. So finally, like after the fifth call, I like, Phil, I will make this up to you. 
So for like the next two years, couple of years, I, all I'm doing is trying to find work for Phil Rizzuto. And he wasn't that popular at that time as far as how much he got him paid. But, you know, the Yankees weren't that great in the early 90s. So sure enough, I found a ton of work for him. I try to work him whenever I can. And out of nowhere, in 1994, he gets into the Hall of Fame through the uh, Veterans Committee. Mm-hmm. And he needs a marketing agent. So yeah. I'm competing against everybody. I mean, I don't know how I'm going to get this guy to sign with me. I have no idea even what signing a guy like Fuzuto, a Yankee, going in the Hall of Fame, 50 years in baseball. I have no idea even what that meant. And I'm sitting in his living room with him and Cora, and I am taking out my A game. I mean, I'm throwing everything at him. And then uh, the next day, he calls me up and goes, Snyder, I'm going to sign with you. I still have that contract signed. He signed a contract exclusively with me. What's great about that story is prior to that, I was doing a lot of work with Yogi Berra, talk, really dealing with him regularly. And at one point, his kids stepped in and kind of, he let his kids do a lot of the marketing, because I was doing a ton for Yogi. And Phil told me later on, he goes, Brandon, I just want you to know, the guy who really stood up for you was Yogi. Yogi told me if I was going to hire anybody, you should hire that kid, Brandon, and he would do a good job for you, work really hard. So you never know, like even, wow. even though... You never really know who's going to step up for you. You know, if you do good quality work, you never know where that is going to lead you. And that was the biggest break I could have got because at that point I didn't have much. And to go get Phil Rizzuto at that time exclusively. And he was 77, by the way. So people were calling (laughs) right for him and he couldn't do most of it. Because a lot of us would travel and then I would spin that work into giving it to other players. That's incredible. That's awesome. So what, what, so I guess like, You've been around the Yankees from either a fan to actually working with them your pretty much your whole life, right? And my out of my adult life anyway, it seems like. Yeah. yeah. So what's that transition from being a fan to actually being involved with the players and then actually doing business with the Yankees? Because that's something that very few people can relate to because you know, I've talked to a few minor league players before um who you know, have been Yankee fans their whole life and then get drafted by, for instance, the Dodgers. Now they're saying, I gotta, I, I can't be Yankee fan anymore because now I'm rooting for the Dodgers. So I guess what's kind of that transition like from being a fan to actually working with the team? And does that um, alter your, your fandom at all? That's a good question. And, and all that is a lot of it is, is very interesting because um, I think, First of all, I think the Yankees, as a business person, remember, I'm a business person first and foremost, and a serial entrepreneur since I've been a kid. So to work with the Yankees, I mean, what's amazing is, is, first of all, they have an incredible professional executive team. There's not a mistake that they have such a brand and keep putting out good teams and have the best stadium. They have extremely great management. So as an entrepreneur, as a management person, it's an honor and a blessing to be able to have worked with them for, oh, I think, 15, 16 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much you can learn about not only talking the talk, but walking it. You know, it's one thing when you got a big brand, even if you own any baseball team, but I don't think they ever rest on their laurels. So I've learned so many life lessons from the Steinbrenners to the Lantros, or Randy Levines and Marty Greenspuns. I mean, this is a, a very serious management team they have. But on top of that, I think, there's a big responsibility and that's my transition. Like mm-hmm. I didn't see it coming, but you know, anybody who puts on the pinstripes or works for the Yankees 
yes, there's a lot of glory and a lot of fame and, or maybe some extra, you know, maybe some extra uh, eyeballs on you. But if you want to do it for a long period of time, you understand that that comes with a lot of responsibility. You know, you don't mess around with those pinstripes and the NY, whether it be the players or the team, unless you're in it for real, you're in it to win it. And on every level at Yankee Stadium, every sponsor is in some way helping participate towards that brand and helping them win. And that's what people don't see behind the scenes. Those signs and those sponsors out there are not random. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, and you don't see them rotating all that often either. And I think that's a really yeah. key to their success is they want everybody rowing the boat to help them win. And I always felt like I was a part of them, of helping them win. Even though obviously, you know, I didn't throw the baseball, I hit the baseball. Yeah. I think that, you know, the fandom part of it is a little disappointing because, you know, when I, especially for me with dealing with the players, as many players as I've dealt with over the last 30 years, 25 years, you know, when I go to the ballpark, it's a completely different experience. If anybody's ever gone to a game with me, it, it's not really, uh, a normal situation besides mm-hmm. knowing a lot of the people that are at the game or work at the game, just are my customers. And I have to give them the utmost respect. I never take them for granted. So I don't go to the game bothered by people bothering me. I'm very grateful when people bother me because I know without them, I'm just sitting out there in the bleachers. Mm-hmm. Now the problem is when I do go to a game, I'm thinking about all the marketing. I'm thinking of every one of these players, how people are reacting to the players, who's popular, who's getting the bigger cheers, who's wearing the most jerseys of a particular player. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what new sponsors are at and what I can maybe work with the sponsors to combine a player with them. It kind of reminds me of Jeter, probably put it the best. He says, when I'm at shortstop, I'm thinking of every pitch. I'm thinking of like hundreds of combinations of things that can happen between who's on base, who's at bat, how fast the runner is, should we shade to the left, shade to the right, is my pitcher throwing a dominant fastball. And in a matter of minutes, I'm thinking of 100 combinations of what I possibly can do if the ball is hit to me. And, I, you know, I kind of thought about that when he told me that a few different times. But at the end of the day, that's how I always felt when I was when I'm sitting in Yankee Stadium for the last 15 years is like I'm thinking of every possibility, every company sponsor, what will fans really like, what's going to move fans, what's what fans really want. So I'm trying to absorb it all in. And then unfortunately, which is exciting as a business person, but as a fan, it's a little tough because you kind of lose the fun part of it. I'm not yeah. going to the game and you know drinking three or four beers, laughing and screaming and yeah. yelling. So that's a little bit of a disappointment. And I have to go yeah. elsewhere to do that. <laughs> elsewhere in the country, you know, college games and yeah. stuff like that to get the full fandom enjoyment. I hope that, that answers your question. No, it yeah. does. It's, it's, it's very interesting. It, it, it's funny because everyone has a different answer depending on what industry they're in and what department of the Yankees they work with if they're a player or, or something yeah. else. So. Like I remember going to Jeter. We, one time he's up in the office and, you know, we just started selling the dirt. I said, Derek, do me a favor, like when you're at shortstop, can you spend a little more time kicking the dirt around a little bit? You know when you're smoothing the dirt over, there's like little pebbles or whatever. Can you spend a little more time? Can you dramatize that a little bit more? Because I'm going to have the photographer take that picture of it, and I want to actually sell the photo with the dirt. And he picks his head up and goes, the scary thing about you is that you're actually serious, is that you actually <laughs> think I'm going to do that. But what's crazy is, is that I could swear on multiple occasions he did it. He and did it. Give me a glance. So I always just sit right over third base and he'd look over and give me a glance. Like, I, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I go to Mariano. I go, Mariano, my sign is on first and third when you come in the game in the top of the ninth. 
when you win this game, can you step backward instead of forward so I can have you right in the middle of my sign? Would you mind doing that? He's like, bro, are you crazy? You think I'm thinking about you one iota after the game is over? But I could swear on a couple of occasions, he stepped backwards. I got a photo. Now, did he think about it? I don't know. Yeah, he's put I would always call Mariano up. If somebody got a hit off him or if somebody hit a home run off him, whenever that player came back into town, I would call him up on his way to the park. I knew exactly when he was going to the park. I would say, don't let that guy get you again. <laughs> don't let that man beat you because, you know, he got you good the last time. I just want to let you know. And he'll oh, click, hang up on me. <laughs> but, you I know, can't you imagine that going guys, like, you get on, That's the fun part of it with the players. Like, especially when I was at third base, <laughs> and some of the guys come on third. In the old stadium, you can almost touch the guy at third base. So it was great when they come to third and it was a pitching change. I'd work out, you know, come up to the office tomorrow, give me a call. It was, it was funny. Like, we'd have these little conversations with the guys on the field. That's the stuff that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's awesome. Amazing. Like, one time, Big Poppy, it was a playoff game. And Big Poppy comes over. He's walking right by my seat. I say, Poppy, it's not going to work out for you today. You're going down. We got your number today. You shouldn't even bother getting up. You should just forfeit your bat. Literally, is what <laughs> I said to him. He goes back to me. He goes, Poppy. He calls me Poppy. He goes, you're wrong. I'm going to prove you wrong. I said, I'll tell you what. If you don't get a, if you do not hit a home run, you have to sign 24 balls any way I want with any inscription. <laughs> if you do hit a home run, then I will buy you all the champagne. You send me the bill tonight when you go out with your with your teammates, and I'll pay for the bill. On the first at bat, oh, Scotty no. gets up. <laughs> the first pitch, boom! I'm like, oh my god. I don't know if today the ball has even landed. That ball is <laughs> so gone. He talk, drop, drops the bat. He's rounding third and stops and, and looks at me and goes and smiles. The people oh in the section God. are crazy. Oh did, you, did you end up That's, paying for the champagne? I, I paid, believe me. Oh, we got <laughs> nice. <good. laughs> nice. Oh, man, but, you know, when you, I think what people miss is that the art of the season ticket, which is getting lost a lot. A lot of times people, you know, now with the tickets maybe increasing a little bit, but the art of the season ticket, we, but to really get into the game, like I go to so many games, I'm probably at, you know, 35 plus games, 40 games. Sometimes I'm at a half a game. Sometimes I stay for the whole game. Sometimes I go for a few innings, but I'm at that stadium constantly. And what's amazing yeah. is like, the art of the season ticket, people don't realize that you all of a sudden, you know when somebody on the dugout has a cold. You know when something's a little wrong. You know when the team's a little off. That's how close you get yeah. when you're at multiple games. That's the beauty of being like a Yankee season ticket holder. You know yeah. the vibe. You know something's up. And I feel like some. I feel like now that that art, so the art of the season ticket, knowing everybody in your section mm -hmm. is yeah. kind of getting lost a little bit. I think people miss it. And I always try to have that with my kids. Like we got to know the people in the section and point out the little things as you go to many games you start pointing out that there's some different things uh, that this game different than another game like you know something special is going on like you've seen this pitcher pitch five times you know he's got some stuff going on when, today. when he's, he's got, got it going game. in the first yeah yeah because yeah. that's you know we've you know when um the season was happening we would go to probably 40 games a year and i remember one weekend or, or something they had a double header in two games and yeah. we, we went to five games over three days and we can't get wow. enough of, we can't get enough of it i mean i live 
10 minutes from the stadium on the subway. So we go to games all the time, but you brought up a good point with the whole community aspect and building this fan base and enjoying the games more. And I think yeah. that one of the bigger issues, not issues, but one of the bigger talking points going around the league right now is getting more people to enjoy the game and watch the game, especially on, on TV and, you know, the, the, t- the price of the tickets going up and it's all affecting everything. So mm-hmm. what's your perspective on getting more people to watch and engage with baseball? Man, I think I think a lot of people go to a lot of baseball games almost compared to any other sport. So I think that's a little dramatized. But this whole speeding up the game is a little – I mean, I think they made some adjustments, which is good. I think people need to chill a little bit. I'm not a big fan of the uh, shift, just to mm-hmm. tell you the truth about that. And I'm not a big fan of taking a pitcher out after one batter. I'm not a big fan of that. But I don't know. I think, to me, I'd like to see more doubleheaders. I think sometimes there's nothing like a doubleheader. I remember yeah. those yeah. – I saw Mickey hit one from the left and the right in my first Twilight night doubleheader that went with my dad. Like, there's nothing like a double deuce. There's nothing like two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that's got lost. Um, I like – listen, I think the Yankees do a great job. They always have a lot of community. They're always bringing in different kids from who are kind of yeah. different programs. Um, I think the bigger problem is, is, is now the way things are going with younger ones where, you know, they're not out in the parks as much. It's not as many – kids playing baseball yeah. that's a bigger concern of mine like i don't worry as much about the kids going to the games as much as the kids playing the game and making it easier and more organized leagues in urban areas so that you know kids can play yeah um, it's too easy to play basketball and um you know the kids you know the great athletes are nervous about going to the minor leagues and getting stuck there for five six years when they could play football go right into the nfl and make money or same exactly. thing with the NBA. I can go make money in a year or two. So that's a concern. I think baseball should fix the minor league economic system and mm-hmm. figure out how to maybe pay the players a little bit more. And, and I think there's money to be made in the minor leagues. If, they, if, if the owners and the leagues would put more money in the minor leagues, I think that minor league baseball is really good. And I think yeah. they could draw better and make more money. And I think a lot of the minor league teams are making money, but the players aren't getting it. So I think if a kid's growing up in high school, you know, some of these athletes could play any sport. I lived with a Division One football player. He could have played any sport uh, at Syracuse. But he decided to play football. He's like, I don't want to go to the minor leagues for six years and then this and that and everything else. Yeah. And I think if you fix the minor league situation where the kids can come out of high school or college even and make some money at least, I think we that baseball would attract a lot more prospects. Yeah, and that's something I've seen – because uh, so I, I'm a coach as well. I coach summers, and I've just seen so many players. I've done anywhere from 13 year olds all the way up to 16 year olds, and I've seen players just getting discouraged, and it's just not as appealing or sexy to be a bas- to be a baseball player over basketball or football, like you mentioned. And a lot of my friends actually play Division One baseball, so when they're in it, it's just there's so many baseball players around this country and everywhere that it's easy for players to get lost. And especially when you're putting them in from college to a minor league system, it's just so easy for that player to just not have that good stretch. And then they're forgotten about for the next two years. And a lot of my friends, even that were all gung ho on like get into the minors, at least just kind of lost interest as they like, it's just, they get discouraged easier just because of the minor league system, I'd say. So then they got to upgrade. I think they should upgrade triple A. I think they should put some more money into it, getting those games televised. 
increasing the salaries and, and making yeah. that better. And then you increase the quality of the game too, because you get better athletes going into the game. Um, but I think people going to the stadium, I'm worried about, you know, there's so much focus on um, the young ones and, and the game and the length of the game. But mm. I just think if you make some adjustments to make the game fair and exciting, like obviously that ball had to be juiced up last year. That's yeah. the stuff that drives people crazy. The Astros cheating makes people crazy. Yeah. Uh, the steroid use is in, in listen, I'm not here. I don't know of any players. I don't, I don't, I don't, but something seems weird. All of a sudden, all these players throwing a hundred miles an hour. So you mm -hmm. got to believe there's some kind of use being, you know, going on now in the leagues. And I worry about that stuff. Like there's got to, that stuff's got to get fixed so that it's more, you know, more evened out. Um, I worry about that stuff more than I worry about the, the you know, the game itself uh, is, is a really good game when you really get into the game. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you really get into the game, it's a fascinating game with all the things that can happen. I just like everybody to be playing on an even playing field. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I think that um, a lot of the, the diehard fans or the fans that keep up with the game a lot more, they have a completely different perspective on – what actually needs to be done to get people more involved. And it's the exact opposite of what MLB is actually doing. The, the MLB comes out with the, like you said, the changing of the pitchers. They have the, the um, whatchamacallit, the, um, the pitch timer. Um, they're trying to switch all these things up. But then you go and ask the Yankee reporters and the diehard fans, and they're just like, this is not what needs to get done. And it's... To me, it's funny because they're listening to the wrong people, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, the games were two hours, two and a half hours, many of them. So, you know, with any of these rules, you know, it was not a big deal. Maybe a game went three hours, maybe. So things, you know, listen, when I was, when I was a kid growing up, not every player had to screw around with his batting gloves and his helmet and stepping out and all that crap. Mm -hmm. But So, you know, that, that's an issue. I mean, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have another first base. So you have, you know, I can, you have softball the two first bases so you don't have all these collisions. That wouldn't be a bad idea. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I like the game. I don't like the, I don't like the ship. I think, it's, I think it's stupid, and I think it kind of messes up the game from watching it on TV because all of a sudden this guy is just shot up the middle, and there's, like, the second baseman hanging out right over the bag. I mean, yeah. that stuff drives me crazy. But I like the game. I don't, I don't mind a game hanging for three, three and a half hours. But do I need the pitcher to step off the mound every time, rub the ball and scratch his ass and everything else, and then mm -hmm. the hitter has to mess around with his batting gloves and that stuff. I, I like the idea of tightening up on that stuff. But everything else, I mean, I, I'm ready to go along with it because it's nothing like sitting out watching a nice game. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah. you know, I, I hate to shorten it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, exactly. That's true. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live, daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, all open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet online, your online wagering solution. So I guess a little bit transitioning a little more to 
the the current times right now. Mm-hmm. You have potentially a, a shortened season. You have potentially talking about seven inning games, seven inning double headers. Headers. You have expanded rosters, neutral playing fields, <clears throat> all these different aspects of it. What is your original? What's your take on it from a fan and watching the game, and then what is your take on? it from a business standpoint because it's going to affect a lot of different marketing efforts, you know, TV deals, tickets, um, you name it. Well, I mean, you know, it's what my mother used to say. We only had one thing in the refrigerator to eat. And she, she says, you know, what do you want to have for dinner? And I was like, da, 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 da. Well, okay, that's good. I'm glad you want that, but this is what you're going to get. And this is better than nothing. Unless you can just go to bed and be starving. Yeah. So I, I think right now, like, you know, listen, I think there's a lot of really bright, smart executives in baseball. I think, you know, to go play in a neutral field for a couple of weeks to start the season, just get it going, I think it would be tricky. I think it's I think it's very hard to go pull that off, but I could see that, you know, the first couple of weeks of June, maybe playing one, maybe in Arizona for a couple of weeks, maybe two, three weeks even mm-hmm. until things calm down. It's very hard for people to understand what calming down means because we have no idea. Yeah. You know, yeah. if everybody was getting tested and everybody had these simple tests and everything else, maybe things calm down. But, you know, you're talking about a lot, a lot of money, but also you're talking about a lot of anxiety now. And it would be nice to be able to go home tonight and go in my living room and watch a game, regardless of where it is, yeah. and get this, get things kind of going. Um, I think I'm nervous about it. I mean, I, we were just talking about uh, that 70% of the people that said they wouldn't go to a, a, a sporting event now. Um, when this thing, when, when people are allowed to. So, you know, people are going to be very nervous, especially older people, be very nervous by getting in a crowd, you know, being nervous that there's not a vaccine that could take care of this disease. Mm-hmm. So a lot of money at stake. And either way, the, the, the teams are going to be taking a hit here because of sponsorship and because of uh, lost season tickets, you know, ticket sales and concessions and everything else. So either way, it's not great. But I could see, I could see starting a couple of weeks, two or three weeks in Arizona, and then moving towards July one, and then maybe getting a uh, maybe maybe we can get like an eighty, you know, maybe a ninety game season with yeah. a little bit of an extended playoff situation. Mm-hmm. I can yeah. see I can see us playing games in Yankee Stadium somewhere, uh, you know, at the beginning of July, and then I I would I've been saying all along I thought maybe even towards the end of June, but if they do the Arizona thing, I mean I I, I could see maybe somewhere in July them coming back and playing when things are on an even keel. But I'd like to see some baseball. I mean. If they can figure out a formula where the guys are getting tested and everything could be somewhat, you know, not too complicated or certainly not dangerous over any by any means, but I could see it. But you know, again, remember, teams are, you know, they're just a local sponsorship. I mean, we're talking about, you know, most teams are in the twenty, thirty million dollars a year range. That that money's gone. Um, you, know, you do the math. Obviously, the Yankees have a much bigger gate receipts but you know you talk about the suites and and the, and all the ticket revenue that's lost that would be pretty much lost with no fans attending i mean that's pretty significant hits but i think keeping the game going is better than nothing yeah, yeah i agree that's a good point so i guess i want to definitely transition a little bit um kind of back to the memorabilia aspect of your career what what was one piece of memorabilia that is your favorite and or what was I guess what was your favorite and then what was one of the most valuable ones that you've ever come across? Well the most valuable one is when we sold Don Larson's perfect game uniform. 
you know, one of the greatest games ever pitched, significant, you know, Game 7 World Series, you know, getting to know Don through all these years, although, you know, man, we missed him, you know, unfortunately passed away last year. And, um, but, you know, that was, you know, went for a lot, a lot of money, and I think I had a lot of significance. And, uh, you know, you see different things come and go uh, at our auction now, my collectible exchange, but, you know, not at Steiner anymore, but we see so much stuff on my collectible exchange that blows you away from Babe Ruth bats and Lou Gehrig letters and stuff like that. But I think that, that there's something about that Don Larson uniform. I mean, that's perfect game and game World Series game seven. I mean, wow. Yeah. And against a really good team. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the Dodgers were no slouches. I think the most meaningful piece of memorabilia, which I, I definitely have talked about this before, is two things. One, in 1975, I bugged the hell out of my mother to take me to Boston to see the Yankees play the Red Sox. I wanted to go to Fenway Park. And we stayed at the hotel that the Yankees were in. And I went out to the first game and see just by myself. I talked my mother to let me go by myself. I was 14 or 15. And um, I was yelling at Thurman Munson for an hour during batting practice. When I got back to the hotel, I walked into the elevator. And then right behind me, this big arm holds the door open. And it was Thurman Munson. And he just got it in my face. He goes, what do you want? <laughs> I, I had my scorecard. And I said, uh, would you sign my scorecard? So, <laughs> and I still have that uh, scorecard from that day. And then the other thing was is that um, I was shooting a show on Yes Network called Memories of the Game. Um, later on, it, my show was called um, uh, Remember the Moment was, a, was another one. And then uh, The Hookup was the last show which, you yeah. know, we took care of people and tried to help people in need by surprising with Yankee players and Yankee memorabilia. Yeah. By the way, it's probably the one thing I miss the most is that, that hookup show because we team up with some Yankee players and do some really good in the community, and the, the players were so good, and the Yankees were so supportive. It was great. So I go to Mariano's house. We're doing the What's It Work show, and, and, and what I would do is every show I'd go to a different player. I'd go to his house. And he showed me his memorabilia. And we, he told me a little story about his memorabilia. So I go to Mariano's house. And obviously, I've woke, now woken him up. And uh, he's, what's up? I said, well, we, we got the show. I got these cameras here. He goes, I don't have anything. Oh, what? <laughs> We're in his living room. He's got nothing. The guy has nothing. I'm, I'm ready to kill him. So he goes to the camera guy. This is what I love about Mariano. He goes to the camera guy. And at that, that point, you know, they still had cassettes. So he goes, empty the cassettes out of the box. He takes the box. And goes to his kitchen, takes a knife, and cuts a glove out of the box. He goes, I'm going to show you the glove I used as a kid. And on camera, he cuts the, the box up into his glove, and he shows how when he was a kid, he couldn't afford a glove. And he'd go behind the stores and take the cardboard and make it into gloves, and that's what him and his friends would use. And that's one of the reasons why he has such great hands, why he was such a good fielder, because he'd be fielding with a cardboard box. Yeah, You could find that, by the way, you can find that video, which we filmed on, yes, it's on YouTube. I think it has like a million hits. It's, it's very inspiring. It's one yeah. of my favorite So I still have the cardboard that he signed <laughs> that day. I still have it, and he signed it. I, I just keep it just to keep me humbled and rem remember what's really important and everything else is just a blessing. But it was, it was a really moving story for you know, nine o'clock on a weekday. Morning. Yeah. I remember yeah, that's watching, awesome. I remember watching that video actually. I've seen that a bunch of times. Yeah. It's I love that. And then there's another one where wasn't he on the Yes Network and I think someone came out with a cardboard a piece of cardboard and, and someone was like, Mariano, can you show us how to make a glove out of this? And then he was like ripping it up and he was trying to fit his hand in yeah. there. It was it was really funny. 
Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. Like, it's just amazing. Like, I remember one time in his early days, he was in my warehouse, and I said, what do you want to do after baseball? And he looked at me dead square in the face. He goes, maybe one day I can come and work here with you, Brandon. Uh, so I, I, I text him that all the time. Like, I'm like, it's not too late to come work for me. Yeah. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. <laughs> yeah, that was back when he had the broken English, you know, in the mid-90s when, you know, things were not quite, you know, he didn't become the Sandman yet. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nick, by the way, Mickey Mantle, I just want to say as a footnote, because we're talking Yankees, there's nobody that's been more meaningful to the memorabilia business than Mickey Mantle. He, I mean, it's just amazing the perfection and the pride he took with his autograph. And he was the first guy. I remember we did this appearance. And at the end of the appearance, he came up to me. He goes, Brandon, are we good? Like, what, what are you talking about? He goes, well, before I leave, I want to make sure everything's good, that the decision maker there is good. And, and I, I just have never had a player come to me at the end and say, listen, I'll stay a little longer. I just want to make sure everybody's good. That's what I loved about Mickey. Like, he just – he, you know, if he messed up the autograph, he'd be signing something. He'd go, no, no, go get another one. This is not right. Like, yeah, he wanted awesome. his fans, like, to get really – he was a really, really, really good guy. Like, I, I think a lot of people missed a lot of some of the best parts of Mickey. He was special. Yogi, too, yeah. is another one. Just really special. And um, I've learned now to appreciate the time I spend with the players, where maybe back in my early days I kind of took it a little for granted, you know, that I'm yeah, that I'm yeah. driving somewhere for three hours with Yogi Berra and, and you know and did that many times. Like, you know, don't take it for granted. That's that's, that's mm -hmm. an amazing opportunity. You're with a legend. Like, you yeah, remind yourself, you know. A lot of people would love to be in those shoes. Um, yeah. Uh, so going right along, you mentioned the hookup and how you were working with players to give back and. So we wanted to ask, because we've talked with uh, other people like Gary Sheffield Jr. We talked to him about who was a player that surprised him like off the field and how great of a person they were. So do you have uh, one or a few guys that stick out in particular uh, in, that pertains to the hookup? Um, oh, yeah, there's so many. I mean, I remember when a kid, was get, a kid had gotten a heart transplant, right? Almost dies. And then five years later, he comes back and he's trying to get into medical school. He doesn't have enough money. And Goose Gossage comes with me to, to the to a steakhouse. And we give him a check for $10,000 and a computer. And he's like, I appreciate this $10,000, but I need 100 And I did an email with Goose and we ended up raising $100,000 like in two days. I think Yogi was very, very generous, and people didn't realize how much good work he did off the field. You hear a lot about Jeter's Foundation, which is an amazing foundation mm -hmm. that, that just does incredibly good quality work. You know, his family and his sister um, are in it for all the right reasons, and they've had a tremendous impact on many, many kids. You can't say enough about it. Obviously, Mariano's foundation, you know, he, and even after his career, that's his full-time work is just helping people. And all over the all over the world, actually, but particularly here in Westchester, he does God's work. I mean, I've never seen a celebrity on his level do what he does, let alone every day, which mm -hmm. is insane. Um, you know, Dave Winfield was the first to do a foundation. I got to know Dave back in the mid-80s before he even got in the sports business and fully committed to helping kids and educate kids. Awesome. I think Joe Torrey doesn't get enough credit for, you know, talking about, you know, um, safe at home. I mean, that was a subject that a lot of people didn't talk about, about kids mm -hmm. that had problems at home, that sort of thing. And, and for him to come out and speak out and he's raised so much money and so much awareness to that. I don't think he gets enough credit. And 
I think it's an amazing uh, what he's done. And I think even the Yankee Foundation, like people don't realize you go to the Yankee dance, but, you know, it's amazing the stuff that they do very quietly, you know, in the Bronx for a lot of the schools and a lot of the kids and scholarships. So I give them a lot of credit too. Um, and that's what I love about the Yankees. It's, it's not like they do some stuff. I mean, listen, they do a bunch of things because they're the Yankees and they have a commitment to the community, but they do so many things. The Steinbrenners do so many things underneath the radar, yeah. which is, you know, you, you, you can't begin to mention all of them. And that's what, that's, what the, that's what building a real true brand is all about. And I think people miss that. Yeah. And that's the fun part of it is having the kind of influence and having the kind of power with your brand and doing something non-capitalistic with it too. I mean, the Yankees are there to make money and they're, they're a real business and they do make money, but they also use their power and influence to, to make, you know, make the Bronx better and, and help kids and put a lot into the community. They know their responsibility that comes with it. And that's what I love. They take that responsibility very seriously. And yeah. the reason I know that is because I constantly would get calls from people in the Yankee executives to do all kinds of crazy things to help people, you know, and they're just mm -hmm. all over the radar that you can't even imagine. So I know it's real. And I've never seen another team do, do as much as they do. Yeah. And like you said before, it's all, it's all for a reason. No, nothing is unplanned. It, I'm sure that all of the giving back and philanthropy and, building up a community it's all related to the billboards and everything everything coexists together and that's why the yankees are the yankees yeah that all-encompassing i think it starts with the steinbrenner yeah george was a big giver I mean, he, he was difficult I mean, he was tough but he was a very big giver and he was very committed to a lot of different causes and i can't believe how many times i walk into a charity conversation with a new charity and his name came up as, as a founder or as a guy who supported this at the beginning when no one did. Hey, George was, I mean, I, I was a big George Steinbrenner fan, so I'm a little biased. But uh, even back when it wasn't always popular to be, I, I just thought the guy was unbelievable, uh, unbelievable marketer, businessman. Mm -hmm. um, I was up in Syracuse as a freshman, and he came and spoke. And uh, he was the first person that just, he just said, look, you know, this sports thing, it's a business. Man, that's back in 77. Yeah, because this sports thing's a business. You come to my stadium, you know, painted, clean. I got an eye on the archers, make sure they're dressed right. You know, the parking lots. I, I'm like, whoa! I, I was like, not even. I mean, as a fan, you're not even thinking about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. and I've seen him in action. Like I saw George in action. Like, you know, this is not a guy who's just sitting in the owner's box, you know, smoking a cigar. This guy was in it to win it. Every inning, every pitch, and then he's floating around the concourse. He's making sure that the that the guys, you know, doing their job, taking the garbage, the concessions in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Game six, 1999 World Series. I'm out of my mind. If you ever had a World Series, I'm thinking of all the possibilities, who I have to sign. Remember, it's, uh, Mariana was the MVP. Wayward hits the last home run of the century. All these things in my mind. So I get up. I'm in the mezzanine. I don't know if you remember. There was that black and white cookie place right behind home plate. And whenever I get a little high level of anxiety, I go pick up a black and white right behind home plate, a black yeah. and white cookie. And who's behind it when I go there? It's the eighth inning. George Steinbrenner is yelling at a bunch of uh, workers because the boxes were overflowing on the floor and he wanted everything cleaned up. Here the guy is about to win the World Series and he's <laughs> making sure that, you know, there's not any mess or anything where fans can maybe trip over or whatever. I'm like, this guy, I love this guy. He's all over everything. Everything matters. And 
Yeah, he was tough, but you know, he's also a really big giver too, man. I mean, yeah. I can tell you so many stories of donations and people and kids he's helped. Yeah. Uh, story after story. It's amazing. That's incredible. I, have a, I was going to tell you one more story. Yeah. A friend of mine who's a very big sports marketing guy. Yeah. He calls me up. He tells me the story one day. He goes, Brandon, I was in high school. I was writing for the Florida newspaper. I call up the community guy, the PR guy, and I said, I want to come and I want to interview Reggie Jackson and Billy Martin. The community guy's like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> he, tells, tell, he tells my friend, he goes, you're out of your mind. The only way you're ever getting on the field to interview anybody is when George Steinbrenner comes down and tells me and hangs up on my friend. My friend, who's like a junior in high school, calls up George Steinbrenner and says, listen, I was talking to the community director, the PR guy, and he said, I, I want to come from my school newspaper and I want to interview Billy Martin and Reggie Jackson. And he said, the only way I could do it is if you go and tell them that it's okay. <laughs> George Steinbrenner invites him to the ballpark. <laughs> call, calls the kid, call, you know, calls the kid, I want you to come back, leaves him credentials, everything, takes him onto the field, introduces him to Reggie, introduces him to Billy Martin, and he sees the PR guy, the PR guy, he said, you told me the only way I can get on the field is if George Steinbrenner says I can. I called him up and he said yes. And he wrote the, <laughs> That's unbelievable. the newspaper. That's so Love funny. That. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Quick quick question. Do you have you ever worked with a guy named Lon Keller? No, no. Oh. Well, he, he was an artist for the Yankees, so I was wondering if you ever crossed paths. I may have him. seen a little bit of his work, but I don't think we ever did anything together. Yeah, yeah he designed the, the Yankee logo with the top hat. Oh, wow. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, but wow. the reason I ask is I was uh, – my grandfather worked in the sports marketing industry a lot, and he was a close friend of his, and that's actually who I'm, I'm named after. My middle name is Lon. So, oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. So, um, love that. I love that logo, by the way. It's my favorite. Yeah, that's my favorite. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, yeah, I guess one of uh, the last question that I have is um, more so just – you know, living, living in the times right now, um, because I know that you're, you're one of your more infamous entrepreneurial ideas was selling the dirt at Yankee stadium. And you had the Ted talk called find your dirt that you did. And it's been a big part of your, your story and everything you've done. So I guess could you talk a little bit about one, the inspiration to do that and the story behind the, the find your dirt. And then um, more so with keeping up with the times right now. It's a very fast, fast-paced environment. A lot of things are changing, especially now. We're all home, trying to take advantage of the opportunity that we have instead of just staying home and waiting for times to pass. Times to pass, and I think that that correlates really, really well with just being innovative and thinking of new ideas, like finding your dirt. Um, so yeah, I guess you talk a little bit, a little bit about that. Well, I, you know, the one thing I tell people is just to get this started, that is, and this is probably the most important thing you, if you take anything from this conversation is it doesn't really matter where you are. Mm -hmm. What matters is what you're willing to accept. So I know we're all in a little bit of a shit storm right now with everything going on and it's tragic and it's, it's terrible, but life is difficult. It's difficult today and it'll be difficult many more times forever. Life is not easy. So mm -hmm. the faster you get kind of accustomed to the fact that life is difficult when situations like this come up it won't take you out of whack as much i don't think you could ignore a situation like this but on the other hand if you understand that life is difficult 
then it becomes a little more tolerable to understand, okay, this is going to be another difficult, highly difficult time. But again, it doesn't matter where you are. What matters is what you want to accept. So mm -hmm. if you want to sit here and feel bad, yes, there's been some deaths, which is tragic and horrible. And we are going to go through a difficult time with our economy and our health care. But what do you want to accept? Are you going to accept it and start just feeling bad for yourself? Or are you going to do something about it to move forward? Mm -hmm. And I said at the beginning of the, of the conversation, it's like with great adversity comes great opportunity. And back in 2008, I... I mean, my wife got her, you need oil, W2 oil for her. Every time I come home, she'd be rolling her eyes. Okay, now what? Now what? Now what are you doing? And I said, I think we're done. I think it's over. I, I don't see how my business can continue. The economy is going down, the real estate market, you know, our sales are way, way down. I, I think we're finished. And then sure enough, the dirt thing happened, you know, where all of a sudden I, I was like, you know something, the economy's down, but it's not dead. It's just down. And I'm like, maybe I can figure out some different ways to sell the dirt. So I came up with all these different products and we were brainstorming coasters and pens and keychains and photos. We put adhesive and put the dirt on there, all these different ideas. And all of a sudden it became like novel. Everybody wanted to collect. And all of a sudden I started getting dirt from all the teams. Well, push comes to shove. What really took me over the hump is, is I had my graphic designer do a, a ballpark map. It was a map of all the ballparks. I was going to give to Brian Cashman as a gift, as a thank you, because he's the greatest general manager on the planet, by the way, for all you Yankee fans. Don't yes, begin on my boy Brian's case. <laughs> man, nobody that works harder. I and, love this guy. He's and Cashman, up. we trust. Yes, says it like it is. And mm -hmm. I'm a big Brian Cashman fan. And, and, you know, I never have any qualms. I mean, it's not an easy job, believe me that he has and he's done an incredible job really when you think about it maybe oh, yeah. could be one of the mvps over there so i'm sending him a note i've got the ballpark map with all the stadiums which is kind of cool it's a map with all the stadiums around the country and i say look we got dirt from every team let's put a capsule of dirt and i realized that dirt on each stadium is a little different the viscosity or the color i'm like not all dirt is equal so I said, Brian, a little note, Brian, thanks for everything you've done. But he's always helping me out with different situations. I put, a, I put together a little gift for you of a ballpark map with all these different stadiums. Now you have a little dirt on every team in your office. <laughs> you love that. And then we went on. So we were selling a lot of the dirt products, like 29 bucks, 39 bucks, you know, dirt pens. But this was a $500 item. We were selling a $500 framed poster with dirt on it for 500 bucks and we were yeah. selling through the roof. <laughs> so, you know, just when things were looking horrible, here we are, we came up with one of our best items that we're probably well known for, you know, when, when I was at Steiner. And I mean, you never know what's gonna come up if you just, you know, keep racking your brain and grinding out, you'd be surprised what you come up with. But I don't think the good Lord, although, the good Lord may be a little bit upset with us, and maybe this virus has something to do with the fact that, you know, maybe we could all work together a little better. Maybe we could all be kinder to each other. Yeah. Maybe we'll, all, right, all these countries can kind of be more unilateral to help each other. Maybe there's a big message that's underlying on this virus. And I hate to see life's lost over a message, but I think we've all learned a lot with this virus. Mm -hmm. um, and I yeah. think that, you know, sometimes with these, when adversity happens, sometimes, you know, the best things come are ahead. And I'm hoping that's going to be the case. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, that we all learn from a lot of this as far as, you know, increasing the level of our gratitude and appreciation for many, many little things, the people that stock your groceries, 
mm-hmm. the person that drives you, you know, in a cab or a person who drives you a train or the nurse and the doctor or the receptionist. You know, we've definitely lost our way a little bit as far as, you know, um, making sure that we have high level of gratitude for all, everyone, regardless of how much money you make. And I think that maybe there's a good, some good lessons to be learned, but I don't think good Lord is going to not leave some incredible white space for us to make this planet a little better when this thing passes. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Very well said. Yeah. Some of the greatest companies were started in 2008 when that happened, you know, That's true. it's, it's, it's got to take advantage of everything. And I think that's, nothing really, I mean, there's nothing exciting happens until your back's against the wall. Yeah. You got to yeah. go pretend that your back's against the wall. You got to kind of make the leap to create that kind of anxiety and hostility inside of you. But most people that start, you know, really good businesses or, or have done incredible things usually will come up with some kind of story where their backs are against the wall and they had no other choice. And yeah. that's kind of where we're at now. That's where this country is going to be at, right? When we come out of this, our backs are against the wall. And yeah. I expect some incredible things to come out of this from a lot of mm-hmm. different people and a lot of different companies. Yeah. Yep. It's a very good point. Well, it was absolute pleasure talking to you. I think that yeah. we can all learn a lot from even just being innovative and selling your, selling some dirt, you know? So hopefully we all come out there on the other side, but it was absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, hope Great. to connect sometime soon when there's real baseball going on. Um, but yeah. Well, hope, we'll take you to a game and we'll show you how to get back into the fan, the fan side. Yeah. We'll, the, the more obscure part of the ballpark, the better. You know, yeah. I don't need to be sitting down low anymore. We'll go Sounds good. Bleachers. We'll show you standing room bleacher creatures. We'll, we'll get That's you back into swinging things. <laughs> the real fans are the hardcore yeah. real fans. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. <laughs> By the way, anybody want to get a hold of me? You just like me on Facebook or LinkedIn or go to collectibleexchange.com. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Thank you so much. Yeah, great. Appreciate talking you to guys. You. Keep up the fandom. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thanks. Have a good one.